Welcome to the movies on the brain podcast as I did my honorary my honorary uh version of the Marvel Cinematic Universe theme song as we enter into That's the what qu- that was? as we entered into the quantum realm of the MCU. With me tonight is my co-host as always. Very confused, Chad Mitz. Do 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 Yes. Okay, I can kinda hear it now. Yes, yes. Uh, the music man's very disappointed in my vocal skills. Anyway, <laughs> I am Brian C. Wood, and with me tonight is Chad Metz, and we are going to talk for a solid hour about the Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, and we will break down the movie in its entirety. We will do this the way that we always do it, whether good or bad or not so good. But I think that if we're going to talk about this movie, then I think that we have to start with the what I can only describe as the knives out uh, for the MCU. <laughs> um, this movie has a cinema score that is tied with Eternals, which works for me because I loved Eternals. Eternals was probably my favorite phase for a film, but not a lot of people love that movie. Um, I think they'll grow with it with time. But... Because it has a 47% on Rotten Tomatoes, because critics were very divisive on it, and because the world of think pieces on the internet dictates that Marvel is the enemy of all things good and must burn to the ground, uh, we got a host of the MCU is dying, the MCU is dying, the MCU is dying um, op-eds. And so I think we should talk at the front end of this about why that was and what that means and what our thoughts individually are on that particular hypothesis of the film industry. Well, I'm, I'm glad you, uh, you want to start with that because, yeah, a lot of my thoughts have been around that very thing, you know, because, you know, since pretty much since Marvel has been accepted, it, it was like, how long can this last? Is, there's no way this can last. Is, is the bottom's got to fall out. And every time... It's proven otherwise, and anytime there's seen as a dip in in quality or what what some would say is quality or just expectations, people come out with the think pieces. This is the end for Marvel, and right now they're really doing it because a lot of people have not been uh, happy with the output from pretty pretty much from they'll say Phase Four, but they're pretty much talking from. Uh, Doctor Strange until now, and they're and they're lumping in the Disney Plus shows with all that. So I I, ha- I have thoughts, but we'll we'll get to that. I I think the glut of content from that period is a a, a big part of it, and I think Ant Man is paying the Ant Man is paying the pi- price perception wise so far, but not money wise, which is really kind of odd to me yeah you can't the thing is for me is they haven't had a sure actual full full flesh flop um even internals and black widow we're in the middle of a pandemic and so you can kind of excuse away some of the smaller numbers 
box office wise, but like you know, the they haven't had a a sincere and honest flop, and um, even Thor: The Dark World made money, folks. Um, and I think that where we are culturally right now in this moment is something that is interesting. I think that there is a segment of people who are very, very frustrated that these are the things that are making money. And I think that they're very, very frustrated because of a number of reasons, but the biggest one being sometime in the early to mid-2000s, a distinct shift happened where Hollywood as a whole went away from um, a multi, what I'll call a multifaceted approach, where you would fund films at all levels, low budget, mid budget, high budget, where you would fund multiple genres, westerns, action movies, buddy cop comedies, um, rom-coms, um, you know, things like that. You would, you would fund multiple genres, you would fund at multiple levels, and there would be audiences for each one of those kinds of films. Um, and sometime in the mid-2000s, there became a switch that happened. Um, whether you want to cite Lord of the Rings as the example, or you want to cite <clears throat> um, the Dark Knight trilogy as an example, but studios went wholeheartedly around 2006-2008 away from funding everything and funding everything high level. At, at all levels. And they went to a model where you went to your local bookstore, you picked up whatever book, you bought the film rights to it, and you put it out there and you made it because it had a built-in audience and you were guaranteed to sell tickets. And you didn't have to market it too heavily because there was a large contingent of people who already knew what it was. See, see the Divergent series, see Twilight, see The Hunger Games, you know, any number of other IPs that, that ran out there in the mid-2010s. Um, and that was just easier for Hollywood. It was easier for studios. It was who are have become inherently more risk adverse, and it just worked. And so, as a result, a lot of genres have died off, mainly romantic comedies and and other such things. And so, what you get is people that are frustrated that instead of funding all kinds of different movies, we're funding. Either only movies that have a $150 million plus budget, period, or only movies that have a $5 million plus budget, period, and nothing in between. And we're only financing either award stuff, or we're financing, we're either financing award stuff, or we're only financing comic book stuff and nothing else. At least that's the feeling amongst that group. And so Marvel wears a target on its back as a symbolic sacrificial lamb, if you want to call it that, of all that is wrong with the industry because it represents, it represents the death of those things. You know, um, the best parallel I can draw is you and I are both wrestling fans. You and I both know how much heat John Cena took from men our age not because he wasn't a good wrestler, not because he wasn't a good mic guy, 
but he took the title of being Mr. TV PG, right? Like, that mm-hmm. transition and the transition away from the ruthless aggression and attitude eras got heaped on him. And he became the, the catalyst for that, the target for that anger and that frustration from, from guys our age because we blamed Cena for that transition. And, and in reality, it's, it was a Vince decision. It was a publicly traded company. It was, there are a thousand different factors for why he, he went that direction. Same thing here. Marvel isn't the reason why films aren't being funded outside of the award season or small budget horror. That is an industry-wide, multiple studio problem. But Marvel is taking the heat for it because Marvel is the biggest example of the kinds of films that have come along and, in their view, taken the funding away. And I don't think that that is either right or just. And you shouldn't let those outside opinions influence the way that you judge the art that they're producing. Um, Quickly about that John Cena antidote since you brought it up. Um, I laugh because literally one of my best friends met John Cena at a show in Shreveport while John Cena had the spinner belt and asked him to his, what well, told him to his face that he hated the damn belt and he needed to get rid of it. So, and he's a year older than me. So that whole thing hit because it's like completely accurate. People our age were doing that. And we've got these people doing the same thing with Marvel. Now, it's to me it's tricky with Marvel because Marvel wears that target because they are the most popular thing in town. They are what they are the big name in town. And it's tricky to defend them because they're the biggest thing. They they should have they they should be criticized and people should like question things about them. But in this instance when we're talking about it's wearing this target specifically because Nothing else that pe- that people that you know quote unquote like film that they want to see is getting made, and it's not Marvel's fault. The, they will point to Marvel and say Marvel sucks up all the oxygen when they release something. Which, if you look at you know theater listings, you will say yes, this is true. But why is it true? Because theaters are are filling up screens with things with things like Marvel because they know people will come out to see those. And because Disney requires them to commit to a certain number of screens. Now, see, on that, yeah, on that end, that is where it is fair to criticize Marvel slash Disney because they are strong arming theaters into showing into showing their things on a certain number of screens. On the flip side, people aren't going to see anything else. It's it's become more and more big, big spectacle movies are the things that's driving theater business right now. And the biggest game you have in town that's consistent is Marvel. Um, we've had movies come out. Um, there, there, there are movies that still come out. Uh, but you're not getting the type of people to go see them. And, and it's, not, it's not Marvel's fault. Outside of what the, the requirement on the, stu- on the theaters, yes, criticize Disney all you want for that. But it's not... Marvel's fault that we can't get people to come in to see these smaller movies. Uh, and like you said, the, the trends were changing in the mid 2000s and then COVID hit and that changed everything because COVID was like a supercharge event. 
the you, the trends were changing over twenty years. This hit, and then the studios are all like, "Well, we need to make money. Let's do streaming." Everybody's going to streaming, and now people that were already leaning towards "I'll stay home and wait for things" have been like, "Oh, there's no reason for me to go now. I can just watch it all at home." I don't know if you can turn that back, but with it being that way, people can wait. Um, what no more than a month to see a smaller movie at home, half the cost. Why not do it? Where something bigger like Marvel, like Avatar, you want to see it on the big screen. You want to see it on the biggest, brightest screen you possibly can. That's what drives those movies. Um, so they have legitimate bones to pick with some things with Marvel, but their bigger problem is the industry as a whole. I don't know how you fix that. I don't know how you address that. Uh, I've thought about it a lot, but I don't know because that requires you getting retraining an audience that has been trained. They don't have to wait and they can watch at home and it doesn't cost as much. I don't know how you change that. The thing is for me, and you're right, you don't have to see the whale on the, on an IMAX screen. You don't have to see tar on an IMAX screen. You don't have to see, all quiet on a IMAX screen, although I'd love to, actually, the way that movie is, is framed and presented on Netflix. Um, but, like, you can... You don't have to see these Oscar winners on the big screen. And studios have made a conscious effort and decision, especially this season, that the majority of your, of, of your Best Picture nominees are streaming somewhere. Um, you know, everything, everywhere, all at once is available, I believe, on Amazon Prime. Um, Tar is available on Peacock. Um, The Banshees of Inishin is, uh, is available on HBO Max. Um, the Top Gun Maverick is available to stream on Paramount Plus, as is Devotion, by the way. Um, it, you know, the, uh, Avatar will be available, I'm sure, at some point on Disney+. Plus. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's easy enough to find these things, and that's, that's part of the issue, is that, you know, there's not a reason for them to go out to the movies to see these things that are just going to pop up in the middle of award season on streaming. You know, and they didn't make a whole lot when they came out. Tar made less than a million dollars. The Phil Bombs made less than a million dollars. Or right at a million dollars. Everything all aware, everything everywhere all at once cracked a billion dollars, a million dollars, but that was because it lasted in theaters for damn near a year. Like, I'm sorry, I know that you want these films to succeed and be good, and trust me, they are some fantastic films that we have nominated this year, but that's not where the audience interest is. And the Academy's interest and the artistic interest is in a different place than the popular interest. And that's why I'm concerned that people are banking on Avatar and Top Gun being nominated to drive the ratings for this year's Academy Awards. And I'm not entirely sure that you're going to see any increase in viewership this year. Um, And, you know, so I'm just... I feel like they're targeting the Marvel thing because it is the biggest and brightest star. And also, you know, 
it, it's an industry-wide thing. All the studios have to get together and consistently decide, hey, um, we just had a movie with Jennifer Lopez and Channing Tatum open to big numbers. We had a movie with Channing Tatum and Sandra Bullock open to b- good numbers. 80 for Brady uh, open to good numbers. Like, maybe there are still audiences for these films. Maybe we need to make more of them. That's a industry decision, not a Kevin Feige decision. Now, where you can have complaints with Feige and with the team behind Marvel is in some of their um, storytelling choices. But overall, the criticisms that I've seen of that, Chad, have mostly been the same criticisms that we've been debunking on this podcast for the better part of a year now, which is, we have no idea where this is going. Why are there all these computer-generated images of Kang at the end of the movie? What are these things? You know, to the point where, you know, freaking, you know, Ant-Man is like, got him, right? Like, I mean, I know he said something was coming, but like, we got him, right? Like, everything's good, right? Like, literally, what else do you want them to do? Like, the film is called Kang Dynasty. Like, what else do you want them to do? Like... And they may not be moving at as fast of a pace as you would like, or maybe they're moving too fast. But they're getting to where they want to get to, and you have to you have to take a deep breath and understand that that they are doing long form storytelling, which means that yeah, you get an entire phase of setup movies. Whoopie freaking do. The payoff to that is something much larger down the road. You don't have to watch every episode of the series in order to have, see the satisfying or get the satisfying conclusion. Yeah, so I I can't say issues, but you again, you're right. Um, I think that goes into that last part. Kind of goes into that uh, um, that slash film article I sent you about uh, that was saying there's too much of too much Marvel and it's kind of folding in on itself because the just which an Feige, article was which that, addressed on the press tour and said they're going to cut down the number of Disney Plus shows. So. Yeah, that part was in that article, and that's the part I agree with. I do think um, there was a lot of stuff coming in all at once and kind of folding in on itself. Well, I think at that um, point, I, we were in the middle of the pandemic, and Disney Plus was a brand new thing. And regardless of whether it had been Chap, Chapwick or whether it had been Iger... Chapwick or whatever, yeah. Yeah, they were, going, they were going to try and pump as much content onto Disney Plus as quickly as they could from all their major brands to try and make that thing work. And Marvel is one of your biggest brands. There's no reason why you're not going to say, hey, Kevin, you want to make five TV shows? Sure, go make five TV shows. I don't even know if it's a, it was a, Kevin, you want to make five TV shows, or it was more like, Kevin, you're going to make five TV shows. But either way, that I think that point was valid. And I think, you know, Disney is already rectifying that situation. But everything else, uh, it, it makes it sound like... Yeah, you know, you have to take in all of the Marvel content to enjoy the next movie. And I will get into the movie itself and, and all the things about it. But I've thought about that watching and then, well, after watching the movie and really this movie acts like any other movie that's had sequels before, like a movie of a sequel. Um, yes, you need to know you. It behooves you to know things that happened in the previous movies, and I'm specifically talking about Ant Man. 
if you've only seen the Ant-Man movies and watched this, you'll have more, more fulfillment of it. But that's just like any other movie that's had a bunch of sequels and you watch the latest sequel. Um, if you, and most people that have seen Ant-Man have seen Endgame. That's kind of it. If you know Ant-Man and Endgame, there's nothing else that you need to see. Everything else that's in this movie. And they make it so intro- easy for you, Chad. They give you seven minute clips on Marvel Legends on Disney Plus. But even, even, even they they do. But even without that, even without that, because I didn't watch any of the Marvel Legends stuff, but I know all this stuff. Everything that do, you get here, you've seen in the other two only had to, Yeah, you watch those Ant Man movies, you're good. Even if you didn't watch them, they tell you everything that's happened. Through, through all of them. Um, and it made a big point of saying you need to watch Loki to understand Kang. And to that I say, no you don't. Because it's a completely different dude. They don't even reference the other dude. The biggest thing that came from Loki is the actual image of the timeline splintering, which they show you in this movie. And he's talking about it as you watch it. There's, you did not have to watch Loki to understand this movie. You did not have to watch the whole pantheon of Marvel stuff to understand this movie. You didn't have to watch a single thing from Phase 4 to understand this movie at all. Nothing. Nothing. Everything you need to know is in this movie, and if you didn't get it from that, that is on you because you didn't want to or because you did watch Loki and you was like, oh, I know this is Jonathan Majors, and you're taking it as I had to watch that to get it. No, you didn't. Everything you need to know was in here. Now, did they execute it the best? Did they execute it perfectly? That's up to you to decide. I would say no, but when it comes to that complaint, I don't think it holds water. It This was as self-contained a movie as a sequel could be. Anything that was new, they explained it to you in a way that was quick and easy. Now, if you did watch Loki, did you get something else out of this? Was it more like enriched for you? Yes, because that's the point. You don't have to invest in continuity, but if you do, it feels more rewarding for you. If you don't like continuity, don't watch the other stuff. Don't and go into the movie and get what is presented to you. Now, I don't think there probably been there have been MCU movies in the past where they may have depended on you knowing other things. That's not what they're doing now. This, they told you what you need to know. All the movies in Phase 4, they pretty much told you what you need to know in that movie. So you can watch that movie. Yeah, Black Widow is a so, All you have to do is have seen... All you have to do is watch Black Widow. Like Black Widow is a Black Widow movie. It takes place in between Infinity War and Civil War and Infinity War. That's all you need to know. It's, in, it's Civil War. Like... It's it's not overly complicated. My thing is that like I don't know how do how do I say this? Like for me, I'm a 24 fan. I love that show, coming of age in college and and being a political science nerd and all the things that it had to say about you know the Bush administration and the war on terror and all the things. But the conceit of the show is 24 one hour episodes in real time. Like, they count the time, including the commercials. But even John Caesar and, and Kiefer Sutherland and the team, the creative team behind 
the show will tell you there were certain hours of the day that weren't overall super important to the overarching narrative. Like, you didn't have to watch hours 7, 8, and 9 in order to know and enjoy what was coming in hour 24. It was just, you know, there are some, there are such a thing, there is such a thing as filler episodes in TV. There are such an such a thing as character development episodes in TV. Like, and I think some of what drives people mad about Marvel is that it is serialized storytelling in that sense. That, like, you have to consider the phases as episodes in an overarching story that will have a conclusion. And so you have to view each movie as an ent- entity and also as, as its own thing, but also as part of the overarching narrative. Um, like, I don't have to love every episode of 24 to love the show as a whole. And I don't have to watch every episode of 24 to get a satisfying conclusion at the end of season, at the end of the uh, end of the season. And for me, very simply, when I went to see the movie last Thursday night and I saw it again and I saw it again on Friday, on Saturday night. um, For me, um, there were only three things that I needed to have happen in this film. I needed Kang to be introduced and uh, and explained to the audience at large because, as we've gone over many times on this podcast, not everybody saw the the series finale of Loki. Not everybody knew about that in in that whole monologue. So introduce Kang, give Jonathan Majors the floor, let him chew scenery and do his thing. B, fix his time chair and get him the hell out of there. Either get him the hell out of there or have have him die but in that case the third thing i wanted was ant-man to live and the reason that i wanted ant-man to live was because knowing what kang is and knowing where you're going if you're not gonna have kang use the time chair to get out and wreak havoc on all the timelines then scott has to go and live and go forth in his reality and be the Bruce Banner of his of this timeline of of this space, because if you remember, the first person at the at the outset of Infinity War to let Earth six one six know what the hell was going on was Banner, because he was shot to Earth via the Rainbow Bridge and fell through the Sanctum Serum and Sanctum Sierra and and was like Thanos is coming, and Strange and Strange and Stark are like who. And then they go on that whole expose again about Thanos and what Thanos is. My, those were my three goals. And they were all accomplished. And so I'm satisfied with the, with the episode. I'm satisfied with this film. And those are simple, easy storytelling goals. And I'm okay with them hitting those and, and just being okay with it. I don't need every movie to be an in-game. Yeah, that... that... And that goes to what another thing I was thinking. Uh, yeah, these movies, Marvel is a, a a victim of its own success now because people, especially post Endgame, it seems that's all they want. They expect everything to be Endgame. They expect everything and to be a billion I, dollar movie, and none of them have right, hit that and, yet. And that's the thing. The reason Endgame hit like it did was because we had all those movies that came before, and all those movies had different variances. Some of them were great. Some of them were just good. You had a couple that were bad, but you, you, you ran a gamut. 
because everything can't like be in game. Season. You can't, yeah, you can't keep running hot the entire time. You're gonna flame out the audience, and then they're gonna be done with everything. You have to like, just like in the story, you want to bring them up and down to get them invested to 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 keep them around. And then yes, you want to end on a high note. And I know when saying that, we're talking Unless about you're talking movies, about a crowd so. in Montreal, Canada, and then they're just hot the entire time. <laughs> Well, they they were waiting for the end, and then the end went, kind of gave them a, you know, a wet fart. But uh, the detractors of Marvel will say, well, a movie itself should be able to stand alone, be great, and bring you on those things. We sh- they shouldn't be planning to have these like middling movies. I understand. I don't think they're planning to have middling movies, but I don't think they're planning these movies to be what Endgame is. They want them to be the best they can be. But not the best. The best they can be doesn't have to be yeah, in-game I mean, level reception. Okay, if you want to look at it, what the what is the standard of success for any sequel? The standard of success for any sequel is to do better than what the original did, right? Right. You want your you want your box office trajectory for your um, for your franchise to be going upward, right? You want to start at Hunger Games and you want to go up with Catching Fire. And you want to go up again with Mockingjay Part 1, and then you want to really hit the ceiling in Mockingjay Part 2. You, you don't want it to be 1, 2, up, up, down, 3, and 4, which is what happened with the Divergent series. Um, if you look at the numbers, $57 million for Ant-Man, $75 million for Ant-Man and the Wasp, and 108 to 110 depending on your, where you're getting your number, for... Ant-Man in the Wasp Quantumania. That is up. That is a trajectory right. that doubles upon itself with every entry in the series. That is literally all you can ask for from a franchise. Especially a heavy-hitting franchise that is going to take um, most of its money up front. Um, well, so mean, that, that's all you can ask so, for. And, you know, I saw some someone tweet earlier that, uh, you know, that it won the weekend even though it underperformed with what recent comic movies have done. I'm like, that's the wrong frame to have it in. You should be looking at this in the context of Ant-Man movies because that's the series it's in. And in in that context, there's no way that this opening weekend isn't anything but a success just for for the reasons you just laid out. It's multiplied by two every time it's come out the gate. Uh, And in the pantheon of Marvel, I know people generally put the Marvel franchise as one big thing, but there's a lot of little franchises in one big one. And you can't, you can't compare Ant-Man to Spider-Man. Ant-Man is going to lose every time. So you come, you look at the progression of the Ant-Man movies and that is a steady progression. I mean, uh, like dollar for dollar, it's probably one of the best progressions in Marvel, and that includes the heavy hitters, because when the heavy hitters hit high, there's only so much more they can go the next time around. This one, comparable to everything else, it's exponentially grown. That's um, that's what you want it to do. And in that same vein, um, just because everything can't be like gangbusters all the time, you have to look at it... Um, a lot of people looking at the box offices and saying that um, 
the box office and the receptions and saying that Marvel's losing it because they haven't had a whole bunch of, they haven't had a string of success or whatever. But to me, what you want is you want to have like a surefire game buster kind of reception, big movie, like once every two years. So think, out of your think about, it, movie, think about this, Chad. They haven't had a movie open to under $100 million since Eternals. And that's the pandemic. And, and that, that's, you know, Doctor Strange was over $100 million, Thor was over $100 million, Black Panther was over $100 million, and Ant-Man's been over $100 million. And I guarantee you, Guardians will be over $100 million. So, like, you're opening, just because now your opening weekends touch 200 doesn't make you a failure. And especially when, yeah, you're front-loaded, but, like, you know, the cocaine bear isn't going to destroy all of Marvel's audience. You know? They have a little bit of room to run, and they can add to that. But, yeah, just because you haven't had a film since Ant since Spider-Man hit over $200 million doesn't mean the studio is floundering or, or falling. And, and in, that, like, in that thought... Like, okay, Spider-Man was a year ago, a little over a year ago. So in that span, they had Spider-Man was made over a billion dollars. Um, Doctor Strange came within a stone's throw of hitting a billion dollars. Black, pa- Black Panther made $800 million. And all of those, I mean, Spider-Man was the most critically receptive of those, of, of the ones we've said. But you've got three movies, $800 million or more. In the span of a year, almost all of them, this Ant-Man is the one that's taking the worst beating, but it's taking the worst beating of most of most of their movies. Most of them have been re- received still. The reception has still been good. So I don't see where this whole thing of Marvel is losing it from, because the to me, the only way you can say that is by saying that they haven't had a billion dollar movie in calendar year 2022 when they had. But they had. Two, two over eight hundred million. One of them almost a billion dollars, and and that's with all and and that's with us acknowledging that they had a content problem and they probably had too much coming out at once, and they still had those kind of numbers. So, if you're going to tell me that Marvel is struggling, um, creatively, financially, I'm gonna t- I just want you to tell me where because that's not what I what I see what I see. Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness finished with 411 million domestic. Wakanda Forever finished with 453 million domestic. And uh and so that you know that 409 or 411 and 453 um Doctor Strange finished with 955 Black Panther finished with 855 so about 100 million less and then Thor Love and Thunder Let's see if I can That one's still over like 7 I believe Give me a second 343 million domestic uh 443 443 million domestic 760 worldwide. So 760, 855, and 955 for your three 2022 releases. And then 
of course, Ant-Man and the Wasp is just starting out for 2023. Oh, I mean, all that to say, Marvel has its flaws. Marvel can be criticized. But the, the way and how people are going about it, I think, are misguided. Oh, and by the way, Eternals Lifetime is 164, uh, domestic, and worldwide 402. Again, during the pandemic, and it's a movie people generally just say they don't like. Like you, I think people will appreciate that the farther we get from it. Again, it's just, it's misguided anger for, there are people that want the demise of Marvel and then misguided anger. The other thing, too, that gets to me is this whole conversation about I want them to do something bold. I want them to do something different. I want something outside of the Marvel formula. And then they give you Eternals, or they give you Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, or they give you the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special. And you're just like, this is horrible! It's like, well, wait, wait a minute. You said you wanted us to do something weird and different, and not outside of the formula, yet we did, and now you're, like, hating on it. And that just tells me people don't know, well, not that they don't know what they want. They just want to criticize Marvel. They want to criticize the sameness of Marvel, and then when Marvel's like, okay, well, we won't give you the sameness, then they're like, what is this weird stuff? We don't want that. Give us back what we had. You just don't, you don't want to be happy with Marvel. Just say that, and Move on. If you want to hate watch, go hate watch in the corner. Don't say anything. If you don't want to watch it all, then don't. It's that simple. Don't. And if you don't like it, you don't have to take part in it. Yes, but then I would miss the the great affinity of sitting in a theater and watching uh, Joaquin Phoenix tap dance his way to a goddamn Oscar. And uh, we gotta watch this crap again. Yes, yes, yes. We all are. Um, but. Let's talk about the actual Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania film and how many holes it has. Let's, uh, let's start off with our, our good, Chad. What is our good for Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania? All right. Let's see. Uh, am I gonna... Oh. Since we spent about 45 minutes just, just talking about the ethos around the film. You know, yeah, I, I just looked at the time. I'm like, he did say an hour, and we just kind of ran through... A whole lot of stuff, and not talked about the damn movie yet. Uh, <laughs> that's not even to talk but, uh, about the BAFTA nominations and the fact that All Quiet on the Western Front swept uh, the BAFTAs, and people are piling mm. in on how how awesome that is. And I'm having to be on the internet reminding folks that Atonement won a bunch of BAFTAs and then got nothing at the Oscars. So, like, let's let's not act like it's the great harbinger, especially when All Quiet isn't nominated in the DGAs or the PGAs. Okay, yeah, this movie. Uh, the Good. Uh, there's no other place to go but Jonathan Majors. Uh, if you watch the movie, how can you say anything other than Jonathan Majors? Jonathan Majors is awesome. He's awesome in everything he does. He made this guy, he made this Kang uh, first very sympathetic. And then there's a point in the movie where you clearly see a, like, it's Almost like a literal switch goes off. Yeah, there's a heel turn. And he completely changes. He, but he'll, like, heel turns, you know, it's more, you know, prolonged, dramatic. Like, but he's, like, literally sitting there in the frame. Like, sitting there in the frame. And you, you can see exactly when he hits the switch. And it's like, 
I'm a psycho, and I'm about to let you know. And then from that point on, he's just he is he is terrifying, and he he just he has this air of superiority about him that like you can understand. You under he's like very charismatic, but very terrifying at the same time, and, and almost like kind of regal and above all of the rest of the stuff just to get what he wants. Uh, so that. Uh, I'm, I'm very curious with how the movie ends with Kang. This Kang, I'm very curious to see how that goes forward because we're we're getting a bunch of Kangs. If you didn't know that, oh, this is a spoiler, which I think Brian said earlier. But if you didn't know, we're getting a bunch of Kangs. So, how do they all feed off of this one? Because I I really like this one. Are are we going to get another one that's very well, close we got, to this one? We got a one, preview a of that one. at the end. We we got a preview of of how he's going to play around with the different variations and bring those variations to life. Right. Um, my good uh, is a dual good. Um, you cannot talk about Jonathan Majors in this movie without talking about Michelle Pfeiffer. Um, woman can still go. Um, woman can still de- deliver a powerhouse acting performance. And this is one of the best acted tragedies in the MCU. Um, you really get a feel for the weight and the gravity of the situation between Kent, Janet and Kang. And that is a compliment to the two actors. It's a compliment to, you know, Jeff Loveless and Loveless and the, uh, the script. It's a compliment to the two actors' performances. It's a compliment to the way that Peyton Reed framed the shots and, and framed the exposition. I have a slight issue with giving all the exposition to Janet and not to Kang, but like my good is is Michelle Pfeiffer because she plays up to Jonathan Major's level and it it is equal parts tragic. Like it isn't just a tragedy on Janet's end, it's a tragedy on Kang's end as well. And it you truly feel that a tie between folks as much as a as much of a bond as Kang can form with any human being, uh, that a bond was was forged and then broken by those two, and between those two, and I think that's a a really powerful statement because again, it redefines how you look at the end of Ant Man in the Wasp, because you're supposed to cheer and feel happy and elated that you know Hope has her mom back and. Hank has his wife back, and they went into the quantum realm, and they, they saved her, and they defied all the odds. But now, when you get quantum mania, and you put that context on the ending of Ant-Man and the Wasp, it feels more tragic. Because she left knowing what she had done, what she had wrought on those people, that she was a freedom fighter, as Bill Murray was, and as these, these blurb and all the others are now, fighting against him. And they wouldn't have had to do that if she had let him go. And it, it looks like they put a very much a spin on it as though Janet, Janet feels the weight of that guilt of her sin of finding the first train out. And that really puts a different spin on the end of Ant-Man and the Wasp, and it really informs Janet's character. And Michelle Pfeiffer does it really awesome. I love, the, uh, I love all the memes going around about the summer of 1989 repeating itself. With uh, 
we have Michael Keaton and, and Michelle Pfeiffer getting all the love in the same week. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's my, one of my goods. The other good, of course, has to be my good friend, fellow crazy person, MODOK. They did MODOK wonderfully. I love that big, ugly, you know what. That is awesome. That is exactly where, how, and why I wanted that man done. It is, this, it is, he, they did it better than Ego the Living Planet. I got one shot of Ego the Living Planet as a freaking planet. I got multiple shots of, of MODOK as a giant, ugly-ass floating head. And I could not be more happy about that ugly-ass head. And I stood up and cheered, and people looked at me weird when, I, when the first time they said MODOK. So, you know, fun times. <laughs> uh, lots of people have lots of thoughts about MODOK. Most of them saying that... Uh, He's ugly as that... sin. He is ugly as well, sin, and he is not rendered all that great. But that's kind of the right. point. It's, and that's exactly it. He's supposed to look that way. He, like, they make his rendering look weird that it, because it looks so off. Uh, because we know it's Corey Stahl, but it just looks like it's mapped onto this character really weird. But that's the point. He's supposed to look as terrible and ridiculous as possible because Modoc is a terrible and ridiculous character. So if you don't get that, I don't know what to tell you, but that's why he looks the way he does because it's on purpose, guys. And, it's on purpose. And which looks awesome when you consider the fact that that's that he went into the quantum realm and his head basically was smashed and it was smashed in upon itself and that was how Kang found him. And then Kang gave him baby ass and baby legs and lasers and <laughs> it was all good. Yeah, uh, Modoc was fun. I wouldn't say he was my good or bad, but I'm, I'm glad, I I'm glad that they tied it into the larger Ant-Man ethos, though, because that's the only way the face turn at the end pays off. Agreed with that. And I would have preferred some more interaction between her, Modoc and Cassie, uh, other than just don't be a dick, um, because you know she's the one. He's really the one who starts her on her path, because she says in the movie, you know, uh, a bumblebee tried flew into my room and tried to kill me when I was eight. You know, I, I've kind of never had a normal life. Uh, so you know, I, I really would have liked more interaction between those two. But yeah, Modoc definitely falls in the good category for me. Yeah. What is our not so good, Chad? All right, so um, I had something else written here, but what I'm going to go with is the the lack of things to do for some of the characters, and yeah, there's a number of them. But that that you're hitting my bad spot there. Oh, I, I have so I have something else for the bad. So I, I'll I'll lightly gloss over this, so you can hit it for your bad. Um, but Primarily, we're going to talk about Evangeline Lilly because the Wasp, the, one of the Wasps in this movie has a lot to do. The other one, not so. The other one is just kind of there to remind the primary one that this is kind of her fault. And that's how we get all that exposition later. But Evangeline Lilly doesn't really have much to do here. And uh, I guess that's, you know, a shame. And Michael Douglas is kind of in that same vein. He has a little bit more to do. And because he's Michael Douglas, the things that he has to do, uh, he does them well. And he, is, he makes his, 
presence known. So I don't think people will complain so much about him not having anything to do. But he's in the same boat as Evangeline. Lilly. Yeah, but he's an old white but, dude, so <laughs> he's an old I white mean, dude, so they're yeah. okay with him not having all that much. But the thing that I like about Douglas's performance is a, you know, you they made a purpose. They they in, they intentionally showed you the ant farm getting sucked in with everybody at the beginning. Like, the right. ants are literally floating down into the quantum realm with, with all of them. They show you that. So they set that up perfectly. They hint at ants communicating with Hank down there um, in the cantina scene. That's, the, that's what I'm going to refer to that scene forever as, is the, is the Marvel's version of the cantina scene. And um, I also like that in that cantina scene, you get the, a little bit of Hank's jealousy and anger with his interaction with, uh, with Bill Murray, uh, and then the subsequent conversation in the vehicle about needs. Um, you get, you get some, some, some of his work there. He does more lifting in that set of scenes than Evangeline and Lily does across the whole, fi- the whole film. And I think right. that's kind of the frustrating thing, is that, is that when she's an established hero, the way that she was established in... The Wasp, Ant-Man and the Wasp, um, to feel like a, regress- a regressed version that is almost on the same level as Thor the Dark World Jane Foster uh, is not a great thing. So, yeah, that's, that's my not so good. My not so good is the fact that we had no Louise. So we had no, we had no backstory. We had no somebody told something of this, that, and the other thing. I, and that we, you know, we didn't get in, get more humor, uh, with more of the adult humor that we can't we could have gotten. Um, but overall, my not so good would be the special visual effects. Um, Marvel put their VFX team to task on this one, and in some places it it. It works in other places it doesn't and um this is a film that you either buy into the concept of the quantum realm at the beginning or you don't and um uh, you know i really really feel like they uh the vfx wasn't always up to up to par um on this film which you know i'm not expecting it to be freaking avatar but i mean that's pretty much almost what you would have to have done uh, with this much of a, a cg world uh, f- for me, I thought so. I went in fearing the worst from the visual effects. I just feel I figured that would be the stone that dragged this movie down. That people would hate the visual effects. And when we got to it, um, yeah, like you said, there are parts that I can see, parts that I wish were better. But for the most part, um, I thought they did uh, a better job than I was expecting. So I guess because I had my my bar so low, it didn't bother me as much, and it actually exceeded my expectations. Well, and but, and uh, they don't and they don't do themselves any favors, um, because that whole third act is built around an enlarged time capsule, basically, and the weirdness of you know seventy five thousand different versions of Paul Rudd, you know, and the way that those are not have to be rendered. So I don't think they necessarily did themselves any favors, but I don't think it was by any means a... This wasn't Jupiter Ascending by any stretch. <laughs> no, no. It, 
it was much better than that. It's I guess because I went in so low because I know a lot of this was shot in the volume, and I know Actually, a lot of not people as much don't as you like... would think. The volume was one and, and... part of what he was using. It was not big enough for all of their sets, so and, there were only see, that's certain the thing. things that he used it for. Yeah, and that's the thing. I thought it was going to be more of the you know green screen, not actual sets there. But I could tell watching it that no, they built these sets, so. That's that probably impacted what what I thought because I really thought most of it wasn't going to actually be there. Yeah, I mean it, it's it's going to be interesting to see how how that gets received because um, you know the effects houses in Marvel is a big big conversation that is being had right now, and and I think it's one that's justified. I just for me, I just think that that's you know that that was one thing that. I was expecting something Avatar level, and it was a little bit less than that, but by no means was it horrible. No, no, it wasn't. All right, and uh, what is your bad, Jad? All right, so originally my bad was going to be the same thing as yours, uh, the lack of things to do. But uh, I was listening to another podcast, and they were talking about the merits of the movie, and it hit me that... The very the, the trailer we saw for this movie, for uh, the one that has um, the Elton John song in it, the uh, Yellow Brick Road, the framing of the trailer is Kang wants something. He he needs Ant Man to get it for him, and in exchange, Ant Man is going to get more time with Young Cassie. He will be there, and he won't miss the time from her growing up. Uh, when we actually see the movie. That is not what happens at all. He does offer that to somebody. He offers it to Janet at the very beginning of the movie. And from just thinking about it from there and thinking about the, the, the weaknesses of this movie, and I think one, one of the weaknesses is um, the lack of development for Scott through this movie. On first watch, that didn't bother me, but I realized that was my bias with my personal attachment to uh, to the Ant Man franchise, it was like it's like the second Marvel movie my daughter really got into, and she was around the same age as Cassie in that, and that's a whole father son thing. So, you know, I kind of latched onto that. So I I have that bias. So going into this one, knowing it's a father daughter kind of thing, you know, I kind of let all that pass. But Scott doesn't really doesn't really change through the movie. He's concerned about Cassie through the whole thing. Uh, well, first, he doesn't really care about anything. He's concerned about only concerned about Cassie through the thing. And then he realizes that he, at the end, he's just like a hero. The hero that we already knew he was. The framing of that trailer presents that story is more... Uh, I think that story would have connected more with people in the movie but if you giving I, him this I, choice. I think that story works better if Kang survives, like if, if Kang gets let out, because then, as I said on a previous podcast, Hank's uh, or, uh, uh, you know, uh, Scott's desire, his burning desire to have this time back with his daughter that he lost so much of ends up being the thing. The grief of that loss of time is what drives him to make the ultimate mistake and let Kang out. 
which ends up, you know, causing Kang Dynasty and, and all of the timelines and everything else. So if that's the story you want to tell, then that works. But if you tell a story that is basically Kang dies and Hank and, uh, and Scott has all the information about who and what Kang is going forward, then this is the way you go, which is that it enriches Janet as a character and is more fulfilling of her time down in the quantum realm from the first two movies. Um, so I think it just depends on what ending you want as, as, as opposed to, because you're right, it is a father-daughter movie, but it's more of, please don't be like me, please don't be like me, please don't be like me, and less of, I wish you were still that little girl. Right, and there, and there, there's a version of the please don't be like me. Uh, I mean, part of that plays out here where he realizes that being like him is not the worst thing because he is, again, a hero. But in the course of, you know, like character development and for people that want that kind of thing, and Marvel does do this sometimes, I think you get more of an arc if you give start you give Scott that option, and then by the end he's making the decision, am I going to have what I want uh, at the detriment of everyone else, or am I going to do the right thing? But to your point about the ending, and I just found this out today, apparently they just changed the ending like in the last couple of months. They reshot the entire end because, from what I understand, uh, they didn't get out in the original version of this movie. They were stuck in the quantum realm, and I think they were stuck there for a while because I think Scott and uh, and Hope had kids in the quantum realm. Uh, they they were see there's shots of Evangeline Lilly with like two kids with longer hair, and yeah, originally they were supposed to stay in there. So that was a it seems like a very last minute change. So I don't know. Yeah, that, that seems like taking it in a totally different narrative direction. Because for a moment, for a hot moment, I thought they were going to leave them down there. And I was like, are you really going to, like, this doesn't make sense unless Ken gets out for him to have to stay. Like, that just, this doesn't make sense. It, narratively, you take, you take him off the board, you leave him down there, and he lives a life down there that doesn't fit who the character is and has done up until this point in time. Um, because then you then you you burden the character of Cassie going forward with you know, she's already burdened with the fact that she has this technology and she wishes she had, had it sooner because she could have looked for her dad and found her. You don't want to burden her again with the weight of losing her father for another time. So I, I really am if they did reshoot it, I'm glad they reshot it and structured it the way they did. Again, I just would have written a film where Kang, he's responsible for Kang getting out and, and reaping the damage that he does rather than, you know, just throwing Kang against a machine that sucks him in. Although, yeah. the, although that ending, Chad, flows right into the post-credit where it's literally, okay, the Avengers have killed two versions of us. Let's not get let them get that close. Something has to be done now. Yeah. Uh, that is good motivation. I, I still haven't seen it again to see that in uh, and go in and find out like exactly what versions we saw talking to each other. 
Uh, I think one of them had to be the Pharaoh is one Mortis. of them. Yes. Yeah. The yeah the Pharaoh and I think the the one um the I think the the one in the middle I think the one that did most of the talking I think that's a Mortis but don't quote me on any of that I have to go see. Uh, but yeah it it leaves us in a a very interesting place with that credit scene and then the the very last one which is clearly set up for Loki. Um, I'm actually more interested in that one because I know that one's going to be more immediate than the the other one. Uh, but yeah, I mean, all in all, I walked out of this movie like I don't understand why people hate this. It is not the best. It is, but it's definitely not the worst. And it it's a lot of fun, I and I enjoyed the hell yeah. out of it. It's a lot of fun, and it's a cosmic, uh, a crazy ride with a lot of creature designs and some fun cameos and some you know some real interesting storytelling um it's not by far the worst marvel movie i've ever seen it blows avatar it blows the uh, iron man 2 out of the water it blows dark world out of the water um you know it's just for me my bad um my overall bad would just be the fact that um, we spend so little time up in actual real-world San Francisco, whereas that was such a big... The city, the city itself was basically a character in the first two movies. So I'm disappointed with that, but overall, I'm disappointed that we haven't, as a whole, in, in the Phase 4 and up until Phase 5... We're not dealing with the blip as much as I feel like we could. Uh, I feel like Falcon and Winter Soldier did it the best, but she brings Cassie brings it up in this in this movie here about how rent is skyrocketed, how housing encampments are a thing, people can't find housing because there are real world consequences to 2.5 billion people just reappearing at some point. Um. Carrying capacity being what it is already pushed to its limits. Add that on top of it, capitalism, the whole thing. I'm really hopeful that someone, whether it's New World Order, whether it's uh, a second season of, of Falcon and Winter Soldier, whether it's Thunderbolts, I'm, I'm hopeful that somebody actually does justice to the idea of, you know what the responsibility of the Avengers and of the world is to the people who are brought back. I think it just has to be the right project. I don't think Ant-Man is the project for that, especially the way, I mean, this one was geared around like fun and, you know, the silliness of the quantum realm. Uh, It just has to be the right project. They keep touching on it. And yeah, uh, I don't think we've gotten anything like real in depth because Everything I think of as a result of the blip, um, it, it makes me. It all feels like downers to me. Yeah, so, it's it's that opening scene of the five years, the opening scene after the five year card, the the five year five years later time card, where they give that that shot of the city field grown over and you know the whales floating in the Hudson and the whole thing. It just like a post dystopia. Yeah, so I don't know. That might I, I think it's real fertile ground to explore, but they have a lot of, you know, things in the fire right now anyway. Yeah, but you do have New World Order and Thunderbolts that have to stay in that grounded political reality. Yeah, those those could be good spots for it, yeah. 
So let's talk about those two post-credit stingers there, sir. Uh, we've already batted around a bit the, the idea of Immortus and Rata, Rata Al? How does he pronounce that it? That sounds right. Yeah. Um, and a third, a third King Variant that looks a little bit like Iron Man. Um, well, actually looks more like Cyborg from Josh, from Josh right. Whedon's, yeah. uh, Josh Whedon's Justice League. But, um, the stadium full of Kangs, them basically saying that two Avengers have killed, the Avengers have killed two versions of them. Um, the exiled one is gone, killed by an Avenger. They're getting too close to our designs. And we must take a stand now, and I have called every version of Kang and, and these many, many CGI versions of Jonathan Majors that followed. Your thoughts, sir, on that first post-credit tag? Uh, it, it gives us, it sets up where we're going, where, what we're going to be dealing with, which is all these Kangs. Uh, it first made me think of um, the, uh, the League of Reeds, I think that's what they're called. Fantastic Four, where all these Reed Richards from different timelines talk, come, converge and talk and solve problems for everybody's universes. It made me think of that, but I know Kang's been doing that kind of stuff probably longer than Reed. Uh, but then it's like, who is like, which one of these is going to be the actual Kang that we, we're dealing with in uh, Kang Dynasty? Uh, we'll probably get. Kang slash Immortus slash He Who Remains slash whoever going forward in other projects. But when we get to the, the movie and we're going to have a Kang that is the dude, is it one of these guys or is it somebody we haven't seen yet? Because I, I kind of like the guy that's in Ant-Man, but uh, I don't know if it can be him. But then again, we're dealing with time travel and uh, Kang is one of those kind of like the reverse Flash. He shows up and while the, the hero may have met him before, it could be his first time meeting them. So maybe it is the Kang that Scott killed, but it's before he ever got stranded in the quantum realm. He shows up to wreck shop on stuff. So there, there are plenty of possibilities, but uh, I wish I had more of an idea of which one was going to be that guy. Well, and, you know... It's also going to be interesting to me to see what lineup of Avengers meets him first and where they meet him. Um, because, you know, the, the, the Avengers have to assemble for something that large, and we don't know who exactly the roster is for a, an Avengers team at this point, uh, and how six individuals from Earth 616 can battle multiple Kangs, a stadium full of Kangs that just... Something doesn't seem right there, but that's why you've got multiverse, and that's why you can bring in a thousand other versions of different people. Um, right. I like the CGI work. I liked uh, there's a particular shot of Jonathan Majors just jumping up and down in his Kang suit, smiling and laughing, and <laughs> pulling on another uh, version of Kang like he just saw Alabama uh, get beat by LSU in Tiger Stadium. Um, you know, so that those were fun. Overall, that didn't ex- the the Kang Dynasty setup made sense considering that the the same writer for this movie for that movie and also just drives home the point that that Kang is the new Thanos Thanos got his fine I'll do it myself uh, in credit scene and this will be his version of that Um, but but the second post credit sting 
really, really excited me more because it confirmed something that we have talked about a bit on this podcast, which was variations of Kang showing up in Loki Season 2. Right. Uh, yeah, we've pretty much said that since the first season. So what was interesting to me about that shot was the time frame is taking place, and this version of Kang looks like it's the first time, the first version, but with Kang, that's, that can be true. It could not be true. We don't know. So just all the questions of what time frame were they in? It's what very clearly early late 1800s, early 1900s uh, America, and the problem is with Kang is that Kang gets bored a lot. That's how he ends up in ancient Egypt. That's how he ends up in early <laughs> 1900s America. Like, he gets bored sometimes, and he just takes him, takes himself and his technology to other points in time and, you know, becomes a god because he has such advanced technology. Yeah, but, like, is this where he very first comes from before he even has that, that inclination? All these questions that we'll, we'll probably get answers to in Loki. Uh, but yeah, but it's just really intriguing and is exciting because again, I know that's going to be fairly soon compared to everything else. Yeah, it'll be this year. And also, um, you know, just Tom Hilsey's performance, the, the tears rolling down his face, the shock and the awe of just seeing this man after having seen um, He Who Remains and just utterly calling him terrifying and Morbius just being like seriously this dude is this guy you're crapping your pants over this dude just playing around with electricity what you talking about um it, it was it was really fun and I enjoyed that and I can't wait for Loki season two yeah yeah well um we still have a release date for that but I'm guessing it, it well they now that it looks like they're only gonna do now that it looks like they're only gonna like do Secret Invasion and Loki I would expect yeah. Secret Invasion sometime in the spring and Loki sometime in the summer. And then you would back end your, your Disney Plus calendar with a whole bunch of other Star Wars stuff and other projects. Yeah, it'll be interesting how they run it because before last year, they wouldn't run Star Wars and Marvel. Apparently, there wasn't much overlap. And Mandalorian starts in March, March, March 1st. 1st so. and ends on April 18th. So, do you start Secret Invasion on April 18th, or do you wait until after Guardians? And then maybe do um, Loki in, like, uh, September to get it done before um, the Marvels comes out. Well, see, now with the change in release date, I would assume that you would keep Loki in that summer time slot um, where it was the first go-around. And... I think that you would keep that in summertime slot and whether you do secret invasion first or you wait and pull back because there have been some concerns about reshoots on secret invasion. If you just pull back and put secret invasion second and put that in the fall in that September, October range, I think that may also be a possibility again, considering that you will have the Mandalorian and then you'll also have guardians running in theaters for a hot minute. It might be a way to let some, let some Marvel room breathe. Yeah, and I think the breathing room is very, very much needed. Well, and also, let's just all acknowledge that we can stop freaking out about the lack of, of footage from the Marvels 
with them finally coming out and just saying, look, guys, here's a poster. We're moving this back. I didn't understand why people were freaking out. Anyway, there is a movie between the Yeah, but that's between that the truncated, it's that truncated release window we were talking about. It's really hard to market a movie with that short a period of time between films. Because you're talking about right. May to July. The same thing that happened to Thor last year. Thor got the shit end of a stick with, it, with marketing because you couldn't really market it until June because... You know, uh, Multiverse of Madness was still in theaters. So this way, if you move it to November, you keep this is this is the way that they did it all in all phase five, all all phase three, when they went to three movies a year starting in twenty sixteen. You know, you do you either do May, July, you either do uh, May, July, November, or you do February, May, November. Like you, 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 once a quarter is the preferred method, and it gives everybody enough breathing time and enough marketing time. So I'm I'm very I'm very much okay with the move on the Marvels. Yeah, me too. When I saw that, I was like, that makes sense. There's no reason to have them so close together when you're only doing three. Yeah, and again, that might be a good way to move Secret Invasion to the fall, so that it can lead into Captain Marvel. Or uh, the Marvels, so that you know if there's any any advanced story beats there, it can help tie those in. Yep. All right, that'll about do it for this week's episode of the Movies on the Brain podcast. If you want to keep up with this podcast, you can follow us on Twitter. I am at BCW Tiger Fan. At the Mitch Theory. Thank you very much, and please remember that all humans have eight holes. <laughs> I thought it was seven. It is with deep grief that I learn of the death of your kind and brave father, and especially that it is affecting your hot young heart beyond which is commonly such as in such cases. In this sad world of Oz, sorrow comes to all, and to the young it comes with bitterest agony, because it takes them unawares. The older have ever learned to expect it. I am anxious to afford some alleviation of your present distress. Yet perfect relief is not possible except with time. You cannot now realize that you will ever feel better. Is not this so? And yet it is a mistake. You are sure to be happy again. To know this, which is certainly true, will make you some less miserable now. I have had the experience enough to know what I say, and ye need only to believe it to feel better at once. The memory of your dear father is instead of an agony, will be yet be a sad, sweet feeling in your heart of a pure and holiest sort than you have ever known before. Please present my kind regards to your afflicted mother, a sincere friend, Abraham Lincoln.